0: All right, we are on, in our books, we are on lesson number 74. We're going to be looking at the Decapolis ministry this morning. And for this, you want to open up, first of all, to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 9 of chapter 8. And then we will also be looking at Matthew 15. So if you want to get yourself in those two locations, I'll go ahead and begin our lesson. Everywhere that Jesus went throughout Israel, he healed the sick and he healed the suffering. Because why? Because he had compassion for people. I read some commentators last week who said that the number one attribute of the Lord Jesus Christ that is mentioned more than any other of his attributes was that he had compassion for people. What does that mean for you and I? We need to have compassion. I think that's something I always need to work on, is having more and more compassion for people. In our lesson this morning, which is entitled The Decapolis Ministry, we're going to see that his compassion, as we saw last week, was not limited just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In this next recorded move that the Lord Jesus made, he took his small band of 12 men, From the area of Tyre and Sidon over in Phoenicia, where he had healed the Syrophoenician woman's demonically possessed daughter, he left that area. And by the way, that miracle we looked at last week where he cast the demon out of her daughter from a distance is the only miracle that we have recorded during the time he was in Tyre and Sidon. It's amazing how far out of his way the Lord Jesus will go for just one person. Isn't it? We I mean, think about it. If you were the only person on planet Earth, he still would have come from heaven to save just you. He, he had a divine appointments. Remember how it said he must needs go through Samaria? Why? Because he had a divine appointment with a woman at a well. And then a whole town of Sychar, Samaritans were saved. That's why he had to go there. Remember how on time he was for the widow of Nain? got there just as the funeral procession for her son was coming out of the gates of the city. Just in time, right before they got to the cemetery and buried the young lad, the Lord arrived and rose her son from the dead. And remember how he crossed a stormy sea and went over into the area of the Gadarenes? And all that happened there was that he cast a legion of demons out of one man. And then he went right back. So he goes way out of his way just for one person. She was the only person recorded in scripture that he helped while he was in Tyre and Sidon. But anyway, now he leaves there and he goes to an area known as the region of the Decapolis, which is another primarily Gentile region, which was out of the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, the one who had beheaded john the baptist and it was also out of the legal jurisdiction of the religious rulers of israel now in response to the i wanted to mention something else not only was the lord always on schedule but he had a lot of stamina and i wanted to throw this in i do this periodically because you get pictures put before you of jesus as being kind of a a wimp you know a milk toast kind of a feminine guy But that is not at all true. It was a 40-mile hike over from where he had been in Capernaum to Tyre and Sidon up in Phoenicia, and they traveled by foot. And then we don't think he was there very long at all, and he made this long trip over to the Decapolis, which was at least 75 miles by foot. He and his men were rugged, tough men. They weren't at all wimpy, okay? So just erase any of that kind of picture from your mind. In response to the words and works of the Lord Jesus that he performs in this Gentile-dominated area of Decapolis, the Lord also will find many, just like with the Syrophoenician woman, many hearts and minds far more receptive to him than he had among those of his own people. You know the woman of Tyre and Sidon. I don't think I mentioned that last week, but she was an example of why the Lord, back in, I think it was in Matthew 11. Look at Matthew 11 verses something like uh, 20, yeah, 21. Matthew 11:21. Remember when He said to those very, very privileged Jewish cities. In Galilee, where he spent most of his time and performed most of his miracles, he said to them, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done where? In Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And we saw an example of that, didn't we, with the Syrophoenician woman? All right, so here we're going to see really in this Decapolis ministry a foreshadowing of things to come when during the now over 2,000 years of the church age, most Jewish people would reject Jesus. Now, of course, there's always that remnant, but by and far most Jewish people have rejected him during the church age while, in contrast, many Gentiles do not. There are far more Gentiles who make up the church than Jews, right? And that's what this Decapolis ministry is going to be showing us. And commentators say, even though we don't have a lot written here about his ministry in the Decapolis, they say he was there about six months. It's interesting, six months. So when we finish with this, basically there's six months to go before the time of his crucifixion and burial and resurrection. So he is really, we're going to see in the next few weeks, the Lord Jesus is really getting serious about some heavy-duty training of his men. He presents to them for the first time the church. He'll talk about the church, and he, he talks very clearly about his upcoming death and even his resurrection from the dead in three days. So he's really going to start concentrating on his men. But in this ministry, the Lord was demonstrating that although his first ministry was to the, to the Jews, yet he was also the savior of all mankind. So this is kind of a sneak preview, in effect, of the extension of his kingdom into the whole world. It was a preview of the church that he would establish which would embrace both Jew and Gentile and, of course, break down that middle wall of partition between them. Well, the Lord performed many miracles while he was in this primarily Gentile area east of the Sea of Galilee. It's actually, if you look on a map in the back of your Bibles, it's actually the area today known as, and it extends even further because it went all the way up to Damascus, which is in Syria. Damascus was one of the ten cities of the Decapolis. But it's um, primarily the area that he's going to be in when he feeds the 4,000. We'll be looking at that today. Is called today the Golan Heights. But of all the many miracles the Lord performed in this area, it's interesting that Mark only picked out one. He talks to us about the healing of a deaf man. And that's what we'll be looking at. We have two parts to our outline. We're going to be looking at the Lord's compassion for the hurting, in part one of our outline and then we're going to be looking at his compassion for the hungry as we look at his second miraculous feeding the feeding of the four thousand is what it is known as but anyway in the first part compassion for the hurting mark is going to tell us about the healing of this deaf man and then matthew it's interesting tells us about the healing the lord performed in the decapolis of many many disabled people So that's where we're going. If you are in Mark 7, verses 31 to 37, is what we're going to look at first of all. Mark 7, starting at verse 31. It says, And again, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he, Jesus, came into the sea, into the Sea of Galilee, the area of the Sea of Galilee, through the midst of the coasts or the borders of Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf, and he had an impediment in his speech, and they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him, Jesus took the deaf man aside from the multitude, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and saith unto him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. And he, Jesus, charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more, a great deal, they published it, and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Leaving the area of Tyre and Sidon, the Lord Jesus traveled eastward, perhaps across the slopes of Mount Hermon, which is where they think that the transfiguration occurred. That will be the last lesson in our Life of Christ 3 book. And then he turned south into the area of Decapolis which was an area which consisted of ten cities. I and mean, There were many towns and villages, but it was known for ten major cities occupied primarily by Gentile pagan peoples. Now, the word decapolis is a compound Greek word. It comes from Deca, which is the Greek word for ten. You know how to count to ten in Greek? <laughs> I was trying to teach my... I'm going to teach you real quick. It's easy because a lot of our words come from Greek words. So if you saw it spelled out, um, you could understand better. Because ena dia, 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 diametric, two, two, dia. Or ana, dia, tria, tricycle, tria. ena dia, tria, tessera, pendi. Have you ever heard of a pentagram? comes from the Greek word pendi. Enadia tria exi hepta octo enia deka. Deka is the word for ten. You've heard of the decalogue. You know what the decalogue is? Ten commandments. All right. So deka means ten. And polis. It's not police. You know the siren, but it sounds like the word police in Greek. It's actually you would say polis. Sometimes you can't even think how. All right, polis means city. For example, not too far from us, we have the city of Canapolis, Canapolis. That's the city of Canas. <laughs> and there's Minneapolis, the city of many people. <laughs> Metropolis, megapolis. Okay, polis just means city. So all it means that decapolis means uh, ten cities. It was uh, this this particular area at one time was part of Palestine. Part of it had been given to the tribe of um, Gad. Part of it had been ge- given to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It's it's called Gilead in the Old Testament. And it's interesting because it, at one time, it's part of, it was considered part of Palestine, but the Jews never recovered the area after the time of the Babylonian captivity. Now these ten cities were in a sort of unique league, which they had ...had uh, established back in 65 B.C. And they were given permission by Rome, which is interesting... ...to actually have their own army, to mint their own coins, to have their own court system. When Jesus arrived in this area, much as when he arrived in the area of Phoenicia... ...we find that his presence could not be hid. Remember how we talked about that in Mark 7:24? That much light... You know, he is the light of the world. You cannot just, you cannot hide that much light. So he was not able to be hid in the Decapolis, as neither was he in Phoenicia. People obviously had heard about him and about his miraculous powers, because they soon brought to him a man who was both deaf and he had a speech impediment. Now, how might, before we get to the deaf man, let's, ask, how might these people over in the Decapolis have heard about Jesus? Jesus has been up to this time, except for a brief little tour over to Gadara, he has been in, in you know, Galilee or down in Judea. Well, early in his ministry, if you look back at Matthew 4, verse 25, you will find that great multitudes of people had come from the area of the Decapolis over to the area of the Sea of Galilee, they'd heard about Jesus and they came to see him and hear him firsthand. Do you know that there was a great multitude of people from this area who actually heard Jesus speak the Sermon on the Mount? Just like there had been people from Tyre and Sidon who had heard him give the Sermon on the Mount. They had also seen, remember the day before he gave the sermon, he had been healing people all day long. So they had seen him perform many miracles, and they had heard him teach. And when they went back to the Decapolis, they carried word about him to the Gentile people over there. And also then there was that fantastic evangelist who at one time was totally out of his mind, the crude, rude dude in the nude, the, the former gathering demoniac. Remember, Jesus went across the sea through a storm just to reach that man. He had once totally been out of his mind, crazy. Now he was in his right mind, and Jesus actually had command... The man wanted to go back with Jesus and be one of his disciples, but remember, Jesus commanded him to begin to publish where? In Decapolis, how great things Jesus had done for him. And he did. You know, men and women can argue all day long with Christian doctrine. But one thing they can't argue with is a changed life. And if anybody had a changed life, it was this former gathering demoniac. The man had been living in the cemetery, stark naked, cutting himself, crying out in torment, plagued with a legion of demons. Just nobody could control him. He would break through his chains when they did try. And here he was totally sane. You know, last time we saw him, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. It clothed and in his right mind. No longer crying out in torment, but crying out in testimony. And many people listened to him. And many people, because of that, heard about Jesus Christ. And so when he comes, when Jesus comes into this area of the Decapolis, there were many, many hearts which had been plowed ahead of time. And we find many were receptive to receive his teaching and his healing and his whole ministry. And one of the first ones who was brought to him was this man who was deaf. And he also had a speech impediment. Now, what we don't see in the English is that the word deaf given to us in the Greek actually means too blunt or to dull. And what that tells us is that this man wasn't born deaf. He became deaf because of some kind of an accident, a blow to his head or something like that so at one point in time he had heard and therefore he had he had spoken he uh, has a speech impediment he's not mute in other words there's nothing wrong with his voice box but because he wasn't able to hear for probably quite some time he could talk but he couldn't hear the words he was forming if if you've ever talked to someone who's deaf and you've heard them speak it's they 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 sound a little different because it's they can't hear what they're saying and that's what his problem was he was sort of um tongue-tied <laughs> i think it's interesting when he was healed that it, the, the uh, bible says the string of his tongue was loosed that sounds like you know he had been tongue-tied and now he, his his string was loosed <laughs> on his tongue i need that to happen a lot of times because i get tongue-tied up here and say things i don't mean to say and twist it around But the good thing for this man is that he had family and friends who were willing to bring him to Jesus. And it's interesting that we find five steps in the Lord's healing of this man. What is five? The number of in the Bible? Number of grace. So there's five steps of grace in in the Lord's healing of this man. And we could call them sticking, spitting, supplicating, sighing, and speaking. (laughs) Jesus, you know, it's interesting that Jesus cannot be confined by his methods. He cannot be stereotyped. The, the, the people who brought this man to the Lord tried to dictate to him how to heal their friend. They said, It says they besought him to put his hand upon him. But we, in our prayers, do not dictate to the Lord how to answer them, do we? He Sometimes... Jesus would touch somebody, physically touch them to heal them. Yes, sometimes he did lay a hand on somebody. Other times he just spoke a word. Sometimes he spit. Here's a trivial question that you can test your friends, family, children with. How many spitting miracles are there? Three. I don't know why, but there's three spitting miracles. And uh, it's interesting because in the in the church I was raised in, the priest always spits. And he spits three times. And I thought, <laughs> I wonder if that's where it came from. Isn't that, I mean, they go like that. They don't actually, <laughs> when a child is baptized, it's to keep the devil away. It's a superstitious thing. But anyway, my mother used to do that all the time. She'd say something and then instead of knocking on wood, she'd go. sometimes he would use clay spit on clay, use clay sometimes he'd heal close by sometimes like last week with the Syrophoenician woman's daughter he'd heal from a distance sometimes he would heal somebody in a crowd like the woman who had the issue of blood was in a big crowd, she touched just the hem of his garment sometimes, as in this case, he'd pull the person aside and and, uh, performed the miracle sort of privately with them. Sometimes he performed miracles in cemeteries. Sometimes his miracles were very, very public. You know, you can't put Jesus in a box. You can't stereotype or dictate to him how to perform a miracle. One miracle, uh, most of his miracles were instantaneously, but one, which I think we look at maybe even next week, it's coming up soon, was gradual. It was the healing of a blind man. All right, so anyway, the first thing, he's going to communicate to this man the best way he can, which is what we should do with people when we want to talk to them about the Lord Jesus. We reach them where we can best communicate with them. And so this man couldn't hear, so Jesus is telling him he's going to fix his ears. How does he do that? Well, he sticks his fingers in the man's ears. That You know, this is before sign language. He's telling the man, I'm going to do something about your ears. And then, and then he spits. <laughs> no. You, you can figure that one out. <laughs> but I think it's because he was communicating to this man in the way this man would understand that uh, he was going to also heal his tongue, because he spit and then he touched the man's tongue. Spitting, it was believed that saliva, the Gentiles, and I think even the Jews, believed that saliva had medicinal value. So, um, so that's what he was telling the man, basically, that he was going to heal his tongue. And then, what did he do? He looked upward. So this was where he's supplicating. He's telling the man, this isn't going to be some kind of heathen magic. This, this is going to be a miracle from God. He's telling him where the healing is going to come from. And then, most interesting to me, it says in verse 34, after he looked up to heaven, what did he do? He sighed. He sighed. Why do you think the Lord Jesus sighed? The man couldn't hear him sigh. I think he sighed because of all the pain and all the suffering that this people of this world in all generations have had to encounter because of sin. Look over at uh, verse 12 of the next chapter. In my Bible is right across the page. Ma- Mark 8:12. It says, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. There he was sighing because he was just so disappointed with the religious rulers of Israel. I think the Lord Jesus sighed a lot. I think he looks down from heaven and still sighs a lot. Do you sigh a lot when you look around at the world that we live in today? I do. I know every night when I watch the news, and I do watch the news because I want to know what's happening It's very depressing though, I sigh, I go, I just sigh. How can people be so blind? How can they be so (laughs) blind? I don't want to say dumb, but how can they be? Do you sigh when you go to Walmart or out and look around at, at people and you just see their faces and how lost they are? I do, I just sigh. We all know the verse that says Jesus wept, but remember the one that he sighed to. He sighed. And then he spoke. All healing comes by way of the word of God. Oh, by the way, his sighing tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He understands. He's been there. He knows what it feels like. Well, he spoke. And what did he say? He said, In Aramaic, he said to the man, Ephatha, do you know, here you go, here's another, and it means be opened or be released. He was speaking to his his tongue there and his ears to be opened and his tongue to be released. Ephatha. Do you know which of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, has more Aramaic in it than uh, any of the others? Trivial question again. Three spitting miracles. Which Gospel has more Aramaic? I thought this was interesting because I never knew this or realized it before. But hint is we're in it. <laughs> Mark, yes. Mark has more Aramaic. You learned Greek this morning. Now you all know how to t- count to ten in Greek. Now I'm going to teach you some Aramaic. But you know what? You already know some of this Aramaic. Mark has words such as bona, geris, bo- bona erges. sons of thunder is what it means it's that you know it was jesus's nickname for james and john boanerges i think is how it's pronounced that's an aramaic word means sons of thunder then there's the words talitha kumi remember jesus spoke those words to jairus's daughter she was dead he said damsel arise talitha kumi damsel little girl arise Then there was a word we had a couple weeks ago, Korban, remember? That was an Aramaic word. What does it mean? Gift, gift to God. And you all know this one, Abba. Abba means daddy, father, daddy. Now we have this other one, Ephatha, which means be opened or be released. And then there's Golgotha. That's an Aramaic word. It means place of the skull. And the Lord hanging on the cross said something else. He said a whole sentence in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those are all Aramaic words. So instantly after Jesus said Ephatha, the ears of the man were opened and his tongue, that string, was loosened so that he could speak plainly. Notice he didn't have to go weeks and weeks to speech therapy. He didn't have to go through any kind of rehabilitation. Jesus spoke and it was done. His word did not return unto him void. Now, even though the Lord went on to then explicitly charge the man and the people who witnessed this miracle to not tell anyone, it says to tell no man and the word for charged is given in a very forceful word a term he's very strong about this he says don't tell remember he took the man aside privately maybe his family and friends were there but he says don't tell anybody what you have seen here what did they do (laughs) he told it says that the more he charged them the more that they publish the news about what he had done. Is that not very typical of human nature? Why do we always have to do the opposite? What do you think would have happened if God had told Adam and Eve in the garden that they could only eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? (laughs) I guarantee you they would have eaten of every other tree but... The tree of the knowledge of good and evil it just seems to be human nature now i really can't blame these people they especially the man himself he would be so excited what happened to him that he would want to tell everybody about it yet we are not to question the divine commands of god we are just to obey we may not understand them but we are to obey them and so we can't say well these poor people, I I can understand. We need to say these disobedient people. Now, why he told the gathering demoniac to go ahead and tell everybody, and tell, told these people not to, I don't know. But I know divine commands come from wisdom, in car, uh, wisdom omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent wisdom. So we are just to obey them. But perhaps I can give you some reasons why he told them not to run around telling everybody what happened. For one thing, he had come there. Remember, his time is getting short. Why had he, gone, why had he left the area of uh, Galilee to begin with? Yeah, he knew if Herod got his hands on him, he would want to kill him, and the religious rulers were really getting very antagonistic and wanted to destroy him. But he also need, just needed to get away from the crowds to have time alone with his men because their time was getting short, and he needed to really concentrate on training them, teaching them, preparing them, ...for their future apostolic ministry. So he wanted to avoid crowds. Furthermore, he didn't want people seeking him just as a miracle uh, healer, you know, just for thrills. If they came to him, he wanted their purpose to be to hear his words, to hear his teaching. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Thirdly, if word got out too much and reached the Jewish leaders over there in Israel it would provide them with just one more reason in their minds for rejecting him. They would run around telling all the common people of Israel that Jesus was the Gentile's Messiah, not Israel's Messiah. You see, the Jewish people as a whole were not ready yet to accept the fact that their long-awaited Messiah was not exclusively for them, but was the deliverer of both Jew and Gentile. So if They had heard that he was performing the same works over there in the Gentile area of Decapolis. They, the Jews, the scribes and Pharisees would use this and say, he's not our Messiah. He's the, the Gentile's Messiah. But these Gentile people, bless their hearts, they had been in darkness for so long that they just seemed to have so much greater appreciation of light when it finally came their way, can you identify with that? Now, some of you maybe can't. If you were raised in, in the truth, some of us who have come out of darkness, oh, you just you just appreciate the light so much. I spent 22 and a half years in the darkness, and when the light came, it dazzled me, and I still haven't recovered from the dazzling of the light these people had seen for centuries they had seen the things that satan was able to perform and this miracle this healing of this deaf man who had the speech impediment and the other miracles that they would watch jesus perform all day long all, maybe even for six months and, uh, told them very clearly that these were not the works of the devil so the wonder and the faith of these gentiles was greater than by far than the wonder and the faith of the majority of the Jews. These citizens of Decapolis, we are told, were, what verse is this? Uh, Verse 37, were beyond measure astonished. This miracle, this one miracle of this healing of this deaf man literally overwhelmed them with amazement. The phrase used here means that they were beyond all human measuring with regard to how much they were absolutely amazed. They had their socks blown off. They were super amazed. They'd never seen anything like this in all of their history. So they immediately knew that all the previous reports that they had heard from people who had gone over to Galilee and seen Jesus perform miracles and the report that they had heard from the former Gadarene demoniac, they instantly knew that those reports were true. And they therefore made this fantastic confession about their understanding of Jesus. They said, he hath done all things well. That's in verse 37. Isn't that a fantastic statement? It reminds me of the Samaritans at Sychar. When they said that Jesus, the first ones to ever say that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. And here we have Gentiles saying, he hath done all things well. What a contrast to the Jewish religious rulers of Israel who had concluded basically that Jesus did not do anything well. And remember how what they concluded? They concluded that Jesus's works, and they had seen far more miracles than just the healing of one deaf and, and partially speech-impeded man. They had seen miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet they concluded that Jesus did his works in the power of Beelzebub, in the power of the prince of the devils. You know, the, the miracle, if you go back over to Matthew 12 and look at verses 22 to 24, the, the, um, the miracle that had triggered that blasphemous statement From the scribes and Pharisees, that Jesus did his works in the power of Satan was that they had just watched him heal not only a deaf man, but a man who couldn't speak and was blind and was demonically possessed. Far greater miracle than what these Gentiles had just seen, and yet they concluded that Jesus worked by way of Satan. The Gentile people of Decapolis were right. They were absolutely right on target in, in their statement. These six words that the Holy Spirit gave them to speak are words of, of eternal truth. You know, one day, when we can look back on everything, you know, from, from heaven's perspective, when we look back from the creation all the way to the Lord's establishment of his eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. You know what we're going to be able to say? He hath indeed done all things well. You know, from our perspective, sometimes it doesn't seem that way, does it? But his wisdom, his ways, his thoughts are much higher than ours. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's about. And even though we go through storms and things that just drive us wild to distraction, those who love him He is working all things out for good. He is working it out for our good and his glory. And one day we will say, I hope you can say it now in faith, one day we will say it knowing 100% that it, well, I know 100% it's true now, but we'll know it from hindsight that he did all things well. He's God. He does all things well. All right, let's flip over now to Matthew 15. I'm going to be in trouble if I don't start moving faster. Matthew 15, the disabled many. Let's look at verses 29 to 31. It says, And Jesus departed from thence, that's uh, living the area of Tyre and Sidon, and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee. Now this just kind of skips his, uh, his trip through Decapolis, and now he's sort of down, on, still on the east side of the sea of galilee and it says he went into a mountain and sat down there and great multitudes came unto him having with them those that were lame blind dumb maimed first time we see that word in our um, life of christ study maimed and many others and cast them down at jesus's feet and he healed them do you know what that means nobody left with a problem that day everybody was healed Verse 31, insomuch that the multitudes wondered, multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified who? The God of Israel. All right, we'll stop there for now. Perhaps those who had witnessed the healing of the deaf man, you know, those who did not heed the Lord's command to keep silent, went went about and of course we know they did they published it even more and they went about and they told everybody they came in contact with and so that's why it says great multitudes came unto him we know if we take a look at um verses down below that we'll get to uh that this crowd included at least four thousand men plus women and children so it could have been if each man had a wife and one child could have been a at least 12,000 people, maybe up to 15,000, 16,000. I don't know, but there are thousands of people who who came from great distances, this Gentile populated area, to where Jesus was. Now he's somewhere near the Sea of Galilee, but still on the Gentile side. It says that they came to a place that was a wilderness, verse 33. And verse 29 tells us that Jesus went up into a mountain and he sat down there. You know what he did? He sat right in Gentile territory, right where people needed him and where he was readily accessible. They could come to him. He sat down, and it was like, bring the people to me. He did, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, um, he wasn't offended by anyone. It didn't matter how deformed they were, how lost they were. didn't matter how ugly they were, how full of leprosy they were all he made himself readily available to all now it would have taken several days for word of his presence to spread throughout the area and then for these multitudes to assemble with all of their handicapped and sick and demon possessed and blind you know it takes a longer time for people who are like that to to walk but eventually and and when they they um, did come we know well the travel would have been slow so a lot of them, they knew they were going to make a trip, so they packed up their baskets of food. We're going to talk about baskets at the end of this lesson. But they packed up their baskets, and then they made the long trek to, to where Jesus was, and they brought with them all their, their handicapped people. It's interesting, as I said, that this is the first time we read of the word maimed. We haven't read of people being maimed before, although I'm sure there were. But it's a word that is more than just being lame. A person who's lame would be would have both of their their feet, their legs, but they just would ha- you know walk with a limp or something. They were lame, but a person who is maimed refers to someone who's actually lost a body part, like a foot or a leg or an arm or a hand. And what did Jesus do with these people? It says that they were uh, the maimed were made whole. I mean, no wonder these people wondered. Which means literally they were struck with awe. They were witnessing things that absolutely defied any human explanation whatsoever. They knew that the power behind these miracles, especially this, this was a creative miracle to give somebody a hand who doesn't have a hand is a creative miracle. It was one thing to restore sight to the blind, which is amazing as well. <laughs> but if the person has eyeballs, you know, if he doesn't have any eyeballs and you restore the sight, that's a creative miracle. So they, they knew, absolutely, the source was not satanic. They knew the source was divine, and therefore, and they knew Jesus was Jewish, and so who did they glorify? The God of Israel. The God of Israel. Now, since this large crowd stayed with Jesus for three days. Look at verse 32. They stayed with him for three days. By that time, their food supply was used up. They didn't want to leave Jesus. They wanted to stay. I believe he taught them. He, they watched him, and they, they just stayed. And we don't hear any complaint, complaint from them for a lack of food. However, after three days, they didn't go to Jesus saying they were hungry. Jesus went to his disciples. Why? Why? Because he has compassion, exactly. He had compassion for the hungry multitude. So let's look at that in Matthew 15, verses 32 to 39. This is what is known as the feeding of the 4,000. We have already looked in John chapter 6 at the feeding of the 5,000. Now here we have the feeding of the 4,000. Did you know there were two big miraculous feedings with a few loaves and a few fish? Some people think there was only one. As a matter of fact, many Bible critics say that this is just mistakes, that they didn't get their facts right, that there was actually just one, and they either used corrupt manuscripts or these disciples exaggerated to make it look like two so that people would think Jesus was even more amazing. We'll talk about that, though. Although there are many similarities, there are also distinct differences, and there's one very positive proof that comes from the lips of Jesus himself, that there were indeed two miraculous feedings. And by the way, let me just throw this in. No, know you're all looking down because you think I'm going to read any minute, but I'm tricking you. <laughs> uh, do you know how long we've been talking about bread? I had never realized how much there is in the scripture, in the gospels, about Jesus being the bread of life. First of all, we had the feeding of the 5,000. That was back in John chapter 6. And then following the feeding of the 5,000 was the whole bread of life sermon following that was the defilement sermon which was precipitated by the the committee of critics saying that the lord's disciples ate their bread with unclean hands again we're talking about bread then the very next thing we talked about was the syrophoenician woman and remember jesus said you don't take the bread the children's bread and cast it to the dogs and she said well even the dogs get the crumbs so again we were talking about bread and now what are we doing we're going into the feeding of the 4,000. And once again, we're going to be talking about bread, the loaves. And what is interesting to me, and we wouldn't see this if we were not doing a chronological study of the Lord's life, you know, going from one gospel to the next. But did you realize that the feeding of the 5,000 comes first, then in the middle is the bread of life sermon, and then the next thing, well, there's a couple things in between, but the next thing is the feeding of the 4,000. You know that bread of life sermon was for both, but it was to the Jew first, because the feeding of the 5,000 was a Jewish crowd. Feeding the 5,000 to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, then to the Greek. The feeding of the 4,000 was a feeding to Gentile peoples. There were two feedings. Jesus had to show that he was the bread of life, that he gave his life for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. All right, now let's read it. Starting at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days. You know, the other crowd, the Jewish crowd, was only with him one day when they started getting hungry. This crowd took them three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Isn't it just typical of his compassion and his concern for other people instead of himself? you know how far he's walked, how much he's done? Sit there, heal people all day long. Do you know who must really be tired? Probably hasn't even had a lunch break, Jesus. And yet, who is he concerned about? The other people, the multitude. And his disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven, and a few little fishes and he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Notice, the ground, barren ground, not the green grass, not the much grass like the Jewish crowd had gotten to sit down on. There's a lot of significance in that, but this is one reason why commentaries, Bible scholars, say that Jesus was in Decapolis for about six months because the green grass in that area was indicated spring and the barren ground now represents fall so six months have passed but there's also spiritual significance in this as well we'll get to that if i forget it remind me all right verse 36 and he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and broke them and gave to his disciples who were again the distributors and the disciples to the multitude and they did all eat and were filled And they took up of the broken meat or food that was left seven baskets full. And they that did eat were 4,000 men beside women and children. And he, Jesus, sent away the multitude and took ship and came into the coast of Magdala. All right. Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry, didn't he? How many days and nights had he gone without food? Forty days and forty nights. So he certainly could empathize with people who were hungry. These people had been with him now for three days. So he went to his disciples and told them that his compassion would not allow for him to send this multitude away on their own because they were in a wilderness again. There were no local grocery stores they could run to to get food. Many of them might faint on the way. And actually back in those days, if people did not properly prepare with food, many of them did faint on the way back home or wherever they were going because you couldn't just pull into a Hardee's or a McDonald's or a Bojangles and get something to eat. If you didn't plan ahead well enough, some people even starved to death. So his primary motive here was to to meet their physical needs. They didn't need to see him perform a miraculous feeding in order to believe him, in order to believe in him, in order to praise him. They had already testified that he did all things well. and They had already glorified the God of Israel because of everything they had witnessed. So they didn't now need to see another fantastic miracle, another sign to conclude that he was... Special that he—I'm not sure how how far they understood who he was, but they knew he was of God. Their hearts had been opened to him at once. In fact, he had so filled them with wonder and with worship and joy that they were able to go three days without complaining about their hunger. They were being filled by the bread of life. In the feeding of the five thousand. As I said, the crowd had only been with Jesus one day when they sensed their hunger, and that's because they were not being filled with the bread of life because they did not accept him as these Decapolis Gentiles. Uh, anyway, so Jesus came to went to his disciples, and he said that he desired to feed the crowd before he sent them away. And to this, his disciples responded by saying, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude. Now, so commentators just have all kinds of division at this point. About half of the commentators say that the disciples were really slow to learn. And we know that they were because we know we are. <laughs> but I want to give them a little more credit than, than some of the commentators. Some of the commentators actually say that they totally forgot that Jesus had fed a much bigger crowd you know, the 5,000. There's no way. They they had been participators in that. That feeding was amazing, and it had probably taken them hours and hours to feed some 15,000 people. They were the distributors. They were involved. They, they were the cleanup committee. If you fed 15,000 people, would you have forgotten about it? <laughs> I, I don't think they forgot about it. I don't, I really don't think they were quite that stupid. <laughs> But if their words do demonstrate a concern about how they were going to feed this large crowd, I think it was based on one of two thoughts. First of all, it may be that they they thought he would not perform for Gentiles such a miraculous physical feeding, which he had previously taught in his Bread of Life sermon represented the spiritual truth of feeding on himself. Remember? So the crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children had been jews on their way to celebrate the passover so it was natural now think as the disciples would think it was natural for the jewish messiah to feed them and to teach them about receiving the free gift of eternal life which was himself you know the living bread from heaven but this crowd consisted of gentiles to their thinking certainly jesus wouldn't likewise feed them and thereby demonstrate the spiritual principle that he also came to them as the bread of life. You know, it was one thing to heal their sick and their diseased. That was a nice thing to do. And he was a nice Lord. He was a a compassionate Savior. But to feed them, you see, would demonstrate his availability to them as equally as he had demonstrated his availability to the Jews. But at least, if that was their thinking, at least I have to commend the disciples. This time they didn't say, send them away, Lord. (laughs) Let them fend for themselves, as he did with the 5,000, as they did with the 5,000, and as they also did with the Syrophoenician woman. Just get rid of the problem, Jesus. They didn't say that this time. So I think they're learning, you know, step by step. Actually, I believe that their question about where to find food was their acknowledgement to him that they understood that they lacked the human resources needed to feed the people. You know, the last time they were faced with the hungry crowd of people, Philip, remember Philip? He had made a calculation based on money, and he said, Oh, we we come up far short. We only have 200 penny worth. He knew that calculation wouldn't work. They couldn't feed the crowd with 200 penny worth. And Andrew had attempted a calculation based on man's supply. He said, well, we have two fish and five barley loaves, and they had to admit that they also came up far short. But notice that no such calculation is made this time. They now understand that as mere men, they could offer no solution to this dilemma. It was insufficient for them apart from Jesus. I believe that they were saying, and you can disagree with me on this. This is just my own conclusion, and I'm not dogmatic about it. But I believe that they might have been saying, "Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness to fill so great a multitude? Listen to how this same question is given over in Mark's account, the parallelic passage. They ask, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? That's in Mark 8, 4. Remember, these are the same men who have now already confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. After that storm, when Jesus walked on water, no longer the Son of Man. They have confessed that he is the Son of God. They have agreed with Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They knew by now that Jesus was more than just a man. So I think their question was, you know, Lord, we know that as mere men, we don't have enough bread to feed this multitude in this wilderness, which is even more desolate Than it was before when there was much green grass. Uh, Even though this crowd is smaller, so we recognize that any calculation made without you is going to come up short of our needed supply. And one reason I think the disciples may have believed that Jesus possibly might perform another miracle is because when he asked them how many loaves they had, they were ready with an answer. They had already found out how many they had. And how many did they have? Seven, and a few small fishes. They were ready. They were ready. They had perhaps suspected that he would do something like this. So this time, he commanded the crowd to sit down. Last time, he had his disciples command the crowd to sit down, and he had them form in groups of 50s and 100s. Do you remember that? Now here we don't have any mention of that. He just commands the whole group to sit down, and they obey him. And they sat on the ground. He took seven loaves then, the seven loaves that they had available, and the fish, gave thanks for them, broke them. The the miracle happened in in his hands. And then again he used his disciples as his distributors to pass out food to the multitude, just like you and I are to be the Lord's distributors to the world of the bread of life. Everyone ate until they were filled. And then when they took up the leftovers, there were seven baskets Remaining, seven basketfuls of food remaining. Now, I know I'm probably running late, but let me just try to get this in because this is where it gets interesting. There's some interesting comparisons that we can make between this Gentile feeding of the 4,000 and the Jewish feeding of John chapter 6 of the 5,000. Notice that the Jews were told, we've already talked about this, to sit down on gr- uh, grassy green fields. If you look at John 6.10 and Mark 6.39, whereas the Gentiles were simply sitting down on hard, barren ground. The Greek word for ground is barren ground. This symbolizes the way in which God had so richly prepared the ground for the Jews to be fed by the Messiah. He had sown and fertilized the ground with his word, they had his word. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had his prophets for centuries. They had all the lush green prophecies about their coming Messiah. And they could take comfort in those. They also had the, uh, all the comforting unconditional covenant promises on which they could take their ease. They indeed had plush green grass upon which to sit. Yet the Gentiles had nothing but barren ground. They did not have the written revelation of God or his prophets because, for the most part, the Jews are the ones who had kept him and the word from them. They, they kept the word and God pretty much exclusively to themselves because the Gentiles weren't worth it. They were dogs. So having far less advantage than the Jews to recognize the world's Redeemer when he arrived, it's amazing how much more prepared for him they were. Perhaps it is because those who had a little light in their religion, the the Jews, you know, by this time they've lost most of the light because their traditions and their ceremonies and their rituals have taken over. Those who had a little light and just a little food um, did not sense the total need of their their hunger. You know, it's. In, I wrote this. The Jews had the whole loaf. They had the whole Old Testament. But they settled for crumbs, whereas the Gentiles were starving to death and would have been happy just for the crumbs, like the Syrophoenician woman, and yet they didn't just get the crumbs. They got the whole loaf. They got the bread of life. You know, those with religion are always the hardest to reach, aren't they? Because their guilt is eased to a lukewarm comfort zone by all their religious trappings and everything. Well, anyway, um, as much as the critics say that there was only one miracle, we find that there were two different locations. There were two different uh, times. These happened The first one happened after John the Baptist had been beheaded. The feeding of the 5,000. this miracle, happened after the, um, the deaf man, after Jesus is in Decapolis. They're in two different regions. There uh, were different food supplies. There's different leftover basket sizes. There are different size crowds. Even the, the words used for baskets are different. We're going to get to that, which is very interesting. But the best proof of all that there really were two miracles is look at Matthew 16, the next chapter over, verses 9 and 10 jesus i won't read those because we're out of time but jesus himself refers to two separate miracles and he does likewise over in the gospel of mark i think it's in chapter eight jesus said there were two miracles you know what that settles it for me there were two miracles the first miracle jesus used how many loaves of bread the jewish miracle Five thousand? Five loaves of bread in the second miracle how many loaves of bread did he use Seven, seven. The number five is God's number of grace, and the number seven is God's number for perfection, completion. You have to have these two miracles together. You have to have both. These two miracles demonstrate that God's plan of redemption is one of perfect, complete grace. His grace, five, would not have been perfect, seven, or complete, if he had only sent a Redeemer to Israel and allowed all Gentiles to perish. Would you think that that was perfect grace? I wouldn't, because I'm a Gentile. wouldn't think that was perfect at all. These two feedings, one to the Jews, one to the Gentiles, demonstrate a perfect plan of redemption. And this is also demonstrating the number of leftover baskets. In the first feeding of the Jews, the number of baskets left over was how many? Twelve. All right, one for each man who distributed it. There were twelve disciples. The number twelve, distributed by twelve Jewish men to Jewish people, can symbolize the twelve tribes of Israel. When it comes time for the harvest, are there going to be? Is there going to be a remnant in the baskets uh, from each of the twelve tribes of Israel? Yes, there are going to be Jews saved Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now in the second miracle, for the Gentiles, the feeding of the 4,000, how many baskets of leftovers were there? Seven. How many periods in church history are there, according to Revelation 2 and 3? Seven periods of church history represented by seven types of churches. There are seven types of churches down through the seven stages of church history. Those seven churches make up the body of Christ. Seven loaves were distributed by how many men again? Twelve men who were not only Jewish, but they were also the first, they were the twelve apostles who laid the foundation for the church, the bride of Christ. The seven basketfuls that were taken up may symbolize the redeemed from the church age, from each type of church. Now, someone, if you're really thinking this morning quickly, or you're reading the notes, you're going to ask, well, why would there have been more leftover baskets following the feeding of the Jews? How many leftovers? This is like mathematics class, isn't it? <laughs> there were 12 leftover baskets fulls of food after the feeding of the Jews. That's more, sounds like it's more, than after the feeding of the Gentiles because there was only seven basketfuls of leftovers. And we all know that there's more Gentiles saved than Jews. So why would there be more baskets leftover of Jews. Well, that's where the Greek kicks in again, because in the English, we just see the word basket for both of these miracles. But in the, in the first miracle, the miracle of the 5,000, the Jewish feeding, the word for basket was the word kofinos. It was a very small, now somebody, somebody's asked, somebody asked before, where did the baskets come from? Remember that crowd had chased Jesus, they actually beat him over to the area of Bethsaida from Capernaum. They didn't bother to take anything with them except one little boy. So where did the baskets come from that they collected the twelve leftovers basketful? You know, a lot of you said where did those baskets come from? Well I have the answer for you. How many baskets were there? Twelve. Kofinos refers to a the, the thing I can most think of is like a belly bag. There were twelve apostles. Those guys carried belly bags. <laughs> they were like small wicker little scrip baskets. Small. And they could carry them on their person. It was like little purses that they carried. And there were twelve leftovers. So each each disciple had his own little belly bag full of leftover crumbs and fish. I don't know if they kept the fish, but at least the bread crumbs. Now, the word used for, in this miracle, in the feeding of the Gentile crowd, is a completely different Greek word for baskets. It's the word sporridas. And it was a, a primarily Gentile kind of basket. Now, remember, these people knew they were going on a long trip when they set out from all the different ten cities of Decapolis. So they took with them "sporidas baskets, which were like hampers, big, big, huge, round baskets, And they had their clothing and food in those baskets. It's the same word used when Paul was lowered from the wall in Damascus in a basket, a big enough basket to carry a man. So compare 12 leftover belly bags of crumbs with seven large hamper-like baskets, seven of those, and where are there more? There were more leftovers after the feeding of the Gentile crowd, even though it was smaller, 4,000, than there were with the Jewish crowd, which consisted of 5,000. So that's interesting. Do you think that's interesting? I think it's interesting. Smile if you think it's interesting. I love numbers. There's a whole study. There are books out there available on uh, numerology in the Bible, and it's fascinating. We could really go wild with some of these things, like why 4,000, why 5,000. You can add them together. You can do all kinds of things and have all kinds of fun. If I'm wrong, I I promise you I will apologize to God the Holy Spirit when I get to heaven. But one thing I do know is that uh, Jesus Christ, the true bread of life, who would give his flesh... For the life of the world, that truth is demonstrated <clears throat> prophetically and symbolically through these two miraculous feedings, one to a large Jewish crowd and one to a large Gentile crowd. And you know what? Who was within those two crowds? Just men, women, and children. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer and the Provider of of the bread of life for the whole world, male and female, Jew and Gentile, young and old, healthy and sick, free and slave. And aren't you glad for that? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you do indeed do all things well. Thank you that you are the living bread of heaven. And if any man or woman or boy or girl eat of this bread, he or she shall live forever. We love you, Lord. Help us to be witnesses like the uh, demoniac from Gadara for you this week, For we pray, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.